0: Hello, I'm Brandon Lisi, your host for the Built On Strategy Podcast, where we explore different strategies with leaders from all around the world. Hey, today my guest is B. Ray, and she's the author of What an MBA Taught Me, But My Kids Made Me Learn. And she's also the co-founder of the Millennial Women Network, which is empowering and mentoring women in over 24 countries. She launched several high-tech and non-tech companies one exit afforded her six years off on a resort bridges island where she got to dedicate her time to raising three children so i'm very jealous about that <laughs> and today we're going to talk about with a uh, talk with her about her work with the millennial women network and the power of creating peer groups and how they can impact people's lives so welcome to the show Bee.
1: hey so happy to be here thank you brandon
0: Let's start with a little background on you, because you've got this entrepreneurial journey that you've obviously got to experience. I'm sure the highs and lows of that uh, um, to the point where you got to exit and take some time off, which is a blessing. Uh, and then we'll get into the the Millennial Women Network in a bit. But I really like uh, people to hear your background and your story as an entrepreneur.
1: Sure. Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, and and thanks for talking about the highs and lows. One of the things I love to say is that every entrepreneur has at least two master's degrees. One is in success and the other is in failure. I may have more than that, but um, I have been involved in entrepreneurship uh, really my whole life, whether it was uh, the first newspaper I created when I think I was... Um, about 10 and I I divided a piece of paper uh, into eight sections and I sold each section for sort of $3 so that you could put an advertisement and I could photocopy it and stick it in all the neighborhood um, mailboxes to of course the mowing lawns and of course the uh, taking care of dogs. But my favorite was uh, ironing shirts for businessmen in the community because the, their wives didn't like to do it and the starch was too strong at the dry cleaner. So I could watch general, uh, hospital and I could get paid $1.75 for per shirt. So, um, entrepreneurship started early and maybe another way to look at it is I guess I've never been able to hold a real job.
0: Yeah. I always told people that I realized when I was 20, I started my company when I was 26 because I realized I was a terrible employee. Yeah. I just always wanted to do it my way. I never wanted to follow the rules. So I just like, well, I better go find a way to make a living on my own because I'm just not going to be able to work in a place that keeps me happy for sure. And by the way, I will say that I'm one of those rare guys that likes heavy starch. Right? I want my shirt to be able to stand up on its own. So <laughs> it. I, always went, I always went to the, the dry cleaner because I wanted that heavy starch, you know. And well, you were not younger, my
1: ideal customer then, but okay. <laughs> well, yeah, you,
0: you got to have that, you got to have that steam press, I think. And, you know, one of the things I learned in college is, and, and and right after college is if you didn't pop the pocket out, right. Cause you know, they'd starch that pocket yeah. closed, And if you didn't pop that pocket out, you could wear it two or three times, you know? Uh, so I'd always be mad if one of the girls I was dating would pop the pocket open. Cause they'd always want to do that. because like, nah, I'm going to get it dry cleaned again. <laughs> <laughs> as long as I didn't eat spaghetti, I was safe, you know? So. So tell me a little bit, what was the company that allowed you? Because I know you've done a number of different things, but I'd love to talk about the one that led to the exit.
1: So that's actually a great question. So I ran a company called Source Harbor. And what we did is we held on to the source code of the software, which is the recipe. It's um, what's needed to make changes and upgrades. And so uh, the software developer doesn't want to give that up because it's their trade secret, it's their intellectual property, uh, and the licensee is dependent upon them for ongoing maintenance and change and so on and so forth. And so if the developer is one of the smaller companies which is usually the case if it's cutting edge and a really cool solution then the licensee could be delta airlines it could be bank of america um, is particularly concerned about working with a 100 200 person company so what they would do is they would have us um and i did this for many years um more than a decade, actually, where we would hold onto the source code of the software in the event the developer went out of business or defaulted on support. So, it is really a a high-tech world. It's a place where I got in contact with more entrepreneurs because what I was really doing was helping the startup software companies um, overcome a sales objection, right? And so, in that way, I became a little bit of… That was my first role as coaching sales for Tech companies, but my role was to hold on to that source code, and it was very administrative. Our job was to write letters and send in database uh, information that said, Yes, the source code has been updated. Here's the contract terms. If these things happen, then the licensee would get access. And so it was not, we did technically verify the software uh, when requested at certain levels. but our job wasn't actually very technical; it was much more administrative. Um, and so, there's a couple of interesting stories if you want to hear about the exit. There's that are related to this. Um, sure. The first is actually not about the exit. The first is about uh, I had four thousand dollars worth of revenue, which was basically a client and a half. I mean, I was just getting out of the gates when we were starting this company, and uh, I was sued by a very large company because we were putting them out of business. Uh, I had been in a related business they were not happy about in a long, long, long sense, decades, um, a decade more, I I had um, outlasted my non-compete. And so they spent uh, half a million dollars suing us. So I ended up with a $384,000 legal bill against my $4,000 worth of revenue. Uh, That was a bad day. Um, I like to share that with entrepreneurs because you're going to have a bad day. Whoever's listening is going to have a bad day. You'll get through it. But that's um, how the cookie crumbles, so to speak. And what was amazing is I had people around me When I wanted to throw in the towel and spend time with my kids, they said, no, 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 Um, you can, you know, that's fine. And they gave me this freedom. But I didn't want to let them down. And they had invested teensy, tiny amounts of money with me to get started. So they didn't care. And they said, walk away. But they said, I'm here for you, whatever you decide to do. And having someone to be able to sit down over a cup of coffee with, uh, you know, we always talk about who are our investors, who are our support team, and just someone to go to that would have supported me going forward or not. Um, I would not have disappointed them in either direction. And that was so powerful um, that then I couldn't give up on them and I couldn't give up on the idea. And so we actually powered through, we made it through that lawsuit. We ended up with clients in 14 different countries and um, really incredible revenues such that about six years later, I was able to sell the company.
0: You know, it speaks a little bit to the power of the relationships, right? And the network that you were surrounded with, because it wasn't about the technology that you were fighting. It was, or certainly there was a technology component to it, but it was really about the people and the, the relationships that you had in the company and around you that were the things that prompted you through the bad times.
1: For sure. And there's layers of it, right? There's the network, which are the people that became the clients that kind of dug us out, that introduced us to new things. Um, and then there's this really tight network, that person that you you can just say everything to about how bad the situation actually is, and, and they don't leave your side. And that was um, so freeing, so empowering and freeing. And so that was great. Um, You asked about the exit, so I should tell you about the exit. And the reality is um, I'm more lucky than smart, and I wanted, I got a phone call in November. Uh, I was, it was early November, and I was um, pregnant with my third child who was due at Thanksgiving. Uh, the others were very young and they were expecting Christmas. That's what happens when you have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. They actually want Santa and a tree and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm running a company thinking, how's this going to happen? And I got this baby and I'll never forget it. This guy calls and he said, hey,
0: you're getting a baby brother or sister for Christmas. That's your
1: present. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good. That's
0: what you're getting. Uh, a, a toy that doesn't require batteries.
1: There you go. Um, very, very noisy toy. Um, so. I get this phone call, it's an investment banker, and he says, you know, you do this great business, you have a great reputation, Um, would you like to buy a company? They're a competitor of yours. Quite frankly, I'd never even heard of this competitor. They were out of California, and they had a 90% profit. Um, so what happens in this business is the average deal lasts like five, uh, five to eight years. So once you get it and then it grows on its own. So we did not, we barely had any profit. We were every penny. We were just funneling back into marketing to grow. So we were by far the best known, had a great reputation, really strong trust, which of course is the key to the business. Um, but we were just turning that money right back into the next deal, the next deal, the next deal. And so for the first time, In, I don't know how long we are steadily for months, not even years, uh, regularly making payroll. Like we're, we are not in a place where I was looking to sell and I certainly wasn't looking to buy someone, but it was attractive for sure. So we went through this whole process. Uh, I created a bid. Uh, What really happened is I heard the word sure. And I like looked around like who said that? (laughs) And of course it was me. I wanted to buy a company. So I thought, uh, oh, and I, I got together uh, a several million dollar bid. I put, you know, my investors, an exact plan. And I told a story with the plan, which was that we were the best company to purchase that company because we, um, had a broader reach of clients, and we had a great reputation. So we could leverage their profitability in a way that no one else could. And so it was that story that I think got uh, their attention. And here's what happened is we lost the bid. Uh, There were two other competitors that gave almost the exact same bid. I mean, within... Tens of thousands of dollars, not even hundreds of thousands of dollars, on a multi-million-dollar uh, offering, and, and ours was a little bit of a leverage buyout, which is why I told the story. Well, you asked me to tell the story of me exiting, and I'm trying to tell you about a failed a, a failed acquisition. So what happened is they get the bid, and I think I'm going to go have this baby. I'm going to live my life. That, that's fine because the deal had to close by December 31st. I take my mind off of it for a month, um, do the whole Christmas tree thing. But by January, I get a phone call. And the so the reason we lost the bid, there were three of us. They were exactly comparable. But the pound sterling was very strong at that moment. So a British company came in. It was like they bought it with Monopoly money. So that was fascinating to me because you can be prepared. You can be smart. You can even be accurate. But... Outside of us are circumstances that are influencing our decisions, they're influencing our business and they're influencing results. And that's what happened is I don't have any control over the dollars value versus the pound sterling. And and they came in and won the bid. So it's a little bit like that
0: right now with Bitcoin and you know and uh, yes. non fungible tokens, right? Where it's just it's monopoly money and you know, people are selling art for millions of dollars for just yes. a little digital file because somebody's, you know, a cryptocurrency, you know, billionaire or whatever it might be. So, well, the yeah, story of that
1: is a, is tra- i I'm, I'm talking to you from Charleston, South Carolina. And then the main artist, like the greatest story is he's a local artist. So, like,
0: oh, okay. I didn't we, know that. We,
1: we love all that. Um, so, exact same thing. Great, great point. Great to tie. And I get a phone call saying, now we need to buy you we're in England. We just bought this company, but we need someone who can run it, make it profitable, but have the connection. We loved your story. And so by June, I had actually sold my company. So here I was, I wasn't smart enough to sell my company with these three babies. I just was like doing the next thing. And what ended up happening is, um, It was perfect because now I uh, had this big pile of cash, uh, three little kids that wanted attention and food and all sorts of things. And I went and I lived on Defusky Island, which is basically right next to heaven. Um, Geographically, it's easier to find between Hilton Head Island and Savannah, Georgia. Um, No cars, bikes, golf carts. It was pretty great life. Built on Strategy is sponsored by TCICRM.com. If you're frustrated with the performance of your marketing CRM, call TCI CRM's database expert to quickly diagnose the problem, optimize your systems, and boost the productivity of your entire marketing and sales team. Move your business forward at tcicrm.com.
0: So time passes yes. and you decide that you want to found or co-found a Millennial Women Network. So what led to that?
1: So uh, after the Bridgeless Island, I did return um, to the corporate-ish world after about six years. And quite frankly, I didn't know what I could do. By then, I had sort of spent a lot of time um, in this altered world, if you will. And I just lost all confidence in, in what I could do. Um, I remember one time, so I told you we drove around in, in golf carts and I didn't go to the mainland, but every two or three weeks, everything was there. My church, my work, my, um, I really wasn't doing much work, but I did a tiny little bit of consulting. Uh, my kids, the school, everything and groceries got delivered. But I went over to Hilton Head um, and I got to my meeting, a 10 minute drive away and my arm hurt. And I'm like, why does my arm hurt? Well, on the island, you wave to everyone that goes by, and i got—I hadn't been in a car for so long. I was just waving to every single car, so that gives you a sense of like, oh my gosh, this person had mommy brain. Like, I mean, I was in a different state of mind, and I thought, what do I have to offer in this corporate world? You know, and it was at that point that my confidence was so low in the the business world but yet my career took off and we did amazing things. We, we ended up coaching um, hundreds of entrepreneurs. We were hosting an innovation conference. We, every single Wednesday, we had about 80 people come in and hear two or three business plans. Um, it was really incredible. Now you're, so that's where I got so much of my experience for helping different entrepreneurs. Uh, very few were women, almost none. So, that, uh, so what I started to see was, huh, why is that? And started to answer some of the questions you and I started to talk about offline. Um, And and how do we serve these people with the people that were right in front of me and other people that I wanted to expand my service to? So that was one question. And then the other thing that I know you had wanted to get to, but it chronologically fits well here, is I started to ask why, What was I doing that was serving these people? Why were we getting all these thank you notes? How was I opening the door to them finding venture capital or pivoting their business uh, or increasing their sales? And what I realized is it wasn't because I had dealt with entrepreneurs for decades. It wasn't because I had attended Harvard Business School. Over and over again, the reason I could help other people, uh, help other entrepreneurs was that I had been a mom and that changed my world. And that's what led to me publishing the book, what an MBA taught me, but my kids made me learn. That's where I learned my most important business schools skills. But that's also where I said, I wanna help someone else who is maybe questioning her capacity, her impact, cause that's what women do is, um, and there's tons of studies about this is, um, we will see the same task and a man will uh, be underqualified, but talk about how they're overqualified Uh, and a woman will be overqualified, but look at the one thing that they can't do and focus on that one thing. And, and I felt if I could help you bring your whole self to the conversation, uh, help you give yourself credit for all of the places you've been, uh, whether that was motherhood, coaching a soccer team, volunteering, uh, in in an art community, uh, if I can help you give yourself credit for that experience, then maybe you can take those risks and and make that impact and that difference.
0: As somebody who's uh watched successful and unsuccessful teams, you know, one of the things that you you know touch on that struck a chord with me is the women who were marketing directors, and you know, sometimes I deal with entrepreneurs, you know, that are, are women, but more often throughout the twenty-nine arc, twenty-nine year arc of my career, it's been more female marketing directors in, in this context. The ones that are successful bring what I would care. When you talk about being a mom, there's a nurturing aspect and, and empowering and lifting up, right? Uh, you know, my I've talked about this on some other shows about being a servant leader and thinking of myself as the root ball, right? I, I don't want to be, I don't need to be the the, the canopy of the tree. I want to be the root ball and get all the nutrients in so that everybody above me thrives and succeeds. And there's a certain amount of nurturing that I think you, you know, you experience that in a different way as a parent. Um, I, I would say, you know, I feel that as a father, um, right. you know, but I also say that there's, you know, I've seen there's a different connection between my sons and my wife than my sons and me. Yeah. Um, and I've often said to people that uh, the one time I ever felt like I actually saw God was in my wife's eyes. The first time she saw Connor.
1: Oh, that's like so beautiful.
0: Just love. Right. You know, and my wife loves me and I love her and, you know, we've happily married a long time, but, There was a look in her eyes the first time she beheld Connor that, you know, it was singular, right? And that nurture and that love, I think, is something that women can bring to their team and their companies and the community, right? Because a family is just a small part of a community, right? It's a small community in itself. And I think women bring a lot of value to that, whereas, you know, again, it's all generalizations, but it seems like the men are more about solve the problem, I suppose to build the team and build the community uh, more, it's kind of a default mode. And again, it's a bell curve. There, you know, there's, there's people of all kinds, but I can see how that, you know, when you talk about, I could help other people because I could be a mom, right. That, that, that instinct or that ability to nurture in any kind of situation, I think translates really well into running a business um, because well. that's a family, you know, trying to get a, especially if it's a startup, right. That you're in the lifeboat together and, you know, you have to take care of everybody else. uh, If you're all going to get there, you know, together, Uh, it's a different dynamic.
1: Well, you're so right. And so often it's a belief. So, um, you know, I don't actually like it when facts get in the way of my story. (laughs) Uh, And people don't like me to say that, but the reality is like, especially as an entrepreneur, if you believe you can win that deal, if you believe you can pivot that product, if you believe you can get out there, that's 90% of the battle. And so having someone in your corner who believes in you, it's its actually real. Optimism is real. The energy that comes from it is real. The connections that come from them, that energy. And so um, really powerful. All of that said, I actually more often speak to men than women. And, and what I think is so interesting is um, this book has done great. It's in all these Barnes and Noble stores. It, re- it received a bestseller. But I am, uh, according to the stats, more men are buying it. And, and I think it's, I, I mean, I, I want women to buy it too, but um, that nurturing may come more naturally to certain people. But it, it's desired and, and others may need to be reminded of it, encouraged in it, uh, convinced of its actual power. Um, and so I, I don't want to exclude the Papas at all.
0: Well, you know, we, we I think it's helpful for us to understand the other perspective. Right. Of the women that are in our lives. And so there's a lot of value. I think that's one of the reasons that men are from Mars, women are from Venus was so (laughs) effective uh, or the love language stuff. Right. It's about understanding the other people in the relationship, which speaks to sort of communication. You know, uh, people trying to figure out how to communicate and connect. In a way, that's um, powerful. And you know, one other thing I want to talk about, and I want to kind of pivot to the millennial women and kind of move ahead. But you know, when you talk about be- belief, use the words belief and optimism. But the thing that I've seen over and over again, you know, beyond respect, which I think is a big part of it. You, you, you know, when people feel respected and valued, you know, they'll be loyal but when you also can layer on a vision, right? So you talk about belief and optimism in the story, but really, you know, another way of framing that is here's the vision and this is where we're all headed. And, you know, we may not be there right now. It may not be a a truth today, but we can manifest that and we can, you know, synthesize all these things around us to create a new thing. And that's a very powerful motivator for people. The act of creation, you know, it's not just, um, making little babies right it's making things out of nothing which is what the entrepreneurial journey really is about you know synthesizing a bunch of stuff and making something new
1: I love that you said that I, and it's one of my greatest passions it's absolutely something we train people up in through the millennial women Network um, and yet it's a place I see I, entrepreneurs if there's one mistake I see and make over and over again. It's, they set a vision in their own head sometimes, but they're A, afraid to articulate it to too many people. Um, and then it, it just stays there. Whereas I believe under your, well, I ask this question all the time. So your company has three to four annual goals and you've articulated and they say, yep. And, and I put them up on a piece of paper and I email them out to everyone. And then I ask how many, what percentage of people in your organization can uh, state those goals? And the answer is, oh, 60%. And they're happy. with One, the problem with that they're happy with that is bad. Um, but the, the other problem, of course, is that it's only 60%. And often it's 20 But then I ask the, this other question, which is, and can state their specific role in achieving those goals. Right? And the answer is like 20%. And the biggest problem is no one's ever not not known. But too often, I'm talking to entrepreneurs who never bother to ask themselves that question. And, and I'm a big believer that setting the vision is one part, but then being able to say, okay, Brandon, you are involved with conferences. And we're taking our company to $50 million this year. Last year, we were at... 10 trade shows. This year, we need to go to 14 trade shows. Uh, Your role is this many people show, you know, very specific about your role. You may not have anything to do with the color of the product. That's fine. But you do have a role in making sure we get to that $50 million.
0: And with that 10 to 14 number, I'm feeling like I'm responsible for a 40% increase somewhere. Yes. <laughs>
1: well, I didn't tell you. We only <laughs> did two. It's like, that.
0: okay, I've got my number. You know, I think that's one of the things that, you know, I when I first joined the Entrepreneurs Organization, which is sort of my experience uh, in the, the peer group world, one of the earlier things I was exposed to was Vern Harnish's The Rockefeller Habits.
1: Oh, he's...
0: And, yes. you know, and that was, a you know, a, that was... E- speaking exactly to the issue of are you, do you have everybody aligned around these, you know, annual goals, long-term goals, big, hairy, audacious goal, right? The BHAG, and then break it down, you know, year by year, quarter by quarter, month by month, and everybody talks. And then Gino Wickman kind of took that layered on some other stuff to, he could build on that IP and do his own thing. Right. But I see that a lot where companies do struggle with it. And, you know, my own company, I struggle with that to a certain degree. Uh, you know, it's 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 eventually learned through osmosis. But when I started the candy store stuff with my partner, you know, it, we started with the why of, you know, look, this place exists to make people happy. We're in the joy business. Candy is just the the mechanism. Everybody that walks in that door, our job is to make them or help them smile right? And that's it. That's our job. Everything else ties to that. Yeah. And if, you know, the, the products we buy, the people we hire, the experiences we create, everything is about putting a smile on people's faces. And when you have that vision of this is what we're doing, I mean, I've seen it even with high school kids where they're like, you know, when people say, well, high school kids don't work, like they get into that, right? Because they know what they're doing. They're not, just, they don't feel like they're just part of a system. And so I think what you're talking about is it is true that a lot of people don't do it, lives in the head, and they want everybody to be mind readers. And um, it's powerful when you see companies that really do a good job of communicating that um, they attract the best talent, they keep the best talent, and they produce great experiences and great products.
1: And communication, in my experience, is half of it, and it's a really important half. The other is realizing that it doesn't just come from the top down. It has to come from the bottom up. It has to start with, well, I think I'm responsible for being your administrative assistant. So what I think my key performance indicators are going to be zero complaints, zero missed appointments, 100%, whatever it is. But I'm going to write that down, and I'm going to say, and then you as my manager come back and say, well... I don't know if I like it like that, but we shape it. And that to me is a lot like raising kids. Now, I could tell my kids all day that they need to play the tuba. And I know people whose kids play the tuba. And I hope that they get in the band. My kids like basketball. They want to play basketball. And so they start, their key performance indicators start with their own passion, what they see as their own role. And then I can describe what I think is acceptable about that or what needs to be done in your cleaning of your room or your grades to get you to that point. But but I can't, it cannot all come from the top down or we're never going to go anywhere. It has got to come from inside. And, and that's the thing that people miss is it's... Um, When we do this Rockefeller habits correctly, when we do the breakdown of our goals correctly, we're spending one-tenth the amount of management time. We might be spending twice as much time on vision setting, but all of that, like uh, fixing bad hires, uh, retraining people, moving people to different seats, or just that heavy lifting of getting stuff done that didn't get done, you don't have to do it. When you get the motivated person in the right seat chasing after the right thing, I mean, people are powerful and, and, the, and they want to be on a rocket ship that is lasting.
0: I would say through the experiences I've had, one of the, you know, I'm not I'm not going to get to change anybody's curriculum for sure. Um, but I, I really do think that the idea of, inverting the organizational chart and putting the customer at the top right? yeah. and the CEO, president, founder, whomever co-founders at the bottom, when you do that exercise because I you know I started that about 10 years ago uh, when I had this sort of mental epiphany about myself and what I was trying to do and really I evolved out of scouting more than anything else. trying to teach kids to be servant leaders. Right and, and that that hierarchical, I'm in charge and people are below me versus people. My job is to lift people up above me. It's really hard, you know. It, it, it's a different visual dynamic when when you do it that way. And it, it you know bring. It's interesting when you talk about it. Your job is you go from managing to supporting, right? It's and, and, and it's changing purpose. those two words changes the conversation quite a bit. Um, And that's something I think it would be, I mean, I get that in a military setting. (laughs) Somebody needs to be in charge, right? But in in a corporate setting, uh, especially when the end, you know, the person that's really in charge, quote, in charge, is the customer. For sure. um, How do, you know, rethinking that whole dynamic, I think, um, is a very powerful uh, experience. And I think it plays into that concept you were talking about earlier about nurturing. Right. Uh, You know, and and you have to communicate, you have to lift up because you don't feel like you can, you know, it's not top down directive. Um, You have to collaborate up through the system, which is, which is a cool experience.
1: Well, you use the words, the root ball, the nutrients, you know, that's the perfect visual. That's so good. And, um, you know, I, I, of course, I think it's related to parenting. And I love that you said you got the idea from scouting. So one of the first things I like to do in like a keynote group is I do what I call um, like a jungle gym exercise. So on the cover of my book, I'm in a business I'm in business attire, but I'm sitting on uh, a jungle gym. And that's actually a nod to Sheryl Sandberg because Sheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook, stated in her book, Lean In that our corporate experiences are not linear ladders. We're not climbing a corporate ladder, but more think of our careers as a jungle gym. And so, if I had one goal in my writing and speaking, it would be to validate parenting as a relevant spot, as a as a rung on that jungle gym. And so, what I'll often do is I'll hand out what I call a blank jungle gym, and I will Ask people to, especially in small peer groups or in huge audiences. Um, I'll ask people to fill their jungle gym up with experiences that maybe you don't every day give yourself credit for, like your college, your engineering degree, your experience at a engineering company, but something like scouting, something like I took my kids to Australia, something like speaking German. Because if we can think of ourselves as the full person and bring that full person into the experience, that Everywhere we are is a place to learn, to grow, and to build networks. And, and you just illustrated that, even though we never talked about it before, that, that you ch- changed the philosophy of how you work as a, as a leader and encourage other companies because of something that happened to you in scouting. And so scouting, for sure, would be one of your jungle gym experiences.
0: So no, I have a quick question for the podcast uh, listeners out there: Who's barking in the background? We need to know oh, what kind of, do- so what kind of dog do we? Or who's, who's joining the podcast today?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so um, I got married three years ago, and I brought one dog to the party—a um, black Labrador—and he decided that my husband said, "Wait a minute, I'm going to have to bring my if I'm going to have dog here, I'm going to have a second. So we have two. 85 pound black labs. And then our daughter moved home and brought us a yellow, um, white one. So I have an Oreo cookie outside. It it is a, um, two black labs and a white lab. And I was sort of hoping someone would hush them up, but I, it seems like
0: it happens. I like to just roll with it. Just acknowledge it. you know. So I have a, uh, I've rescued two dogs. My wife and I rescued two dogs. One's half bass and half lab. I call her my bassador retriever. And she's the alarm, right? So she sets everything off. Like Mm -hmm. there's a dangerous lady walking her baby stroller down the street. And I need to be alerted of that fact. And then she, activates the great Pyrenees, which is the other one. And so, you know, I have to lock them in my kitchen because then if they're in the kitchen, they'll just sleep. So otherwise it's, it's it's obnoxious. So cool. So we have three labs on the show today. I just wanted to know that. All right. So I want to talk a little bit. I know you, we were talking about the book and I kind of sidetracked it like I do sometimes, but let's talk a little bit about what led to the, um, so Millennial Women Network and we what were doing We were talking about
1: here. how I went and worked with entrepreneurs and it was at the Creative Coast in Savannah, Georgia. And that's where I had the chance to work with hundreds of idea stage entrepreneurs. And there I um, had a number of staff. Some were women and some of the people we served were women. Um... Again, not as money as I would like. And some of our staff, we did a couple really cool things where we were able to attract a woman from Tallinn, Estonia, and we were able to attract another woman from Budapest. So we did all sorts of amazing sort of entrepreneurial encouragement programs. Uh, and after that time, um, I left the organization. Both of these women had gone They. of reach out to me and said hey we need those ideas we used to talk about those things we want to serve women and we want to do it in an online platform this was before the world was so much online uh and we want to do it across um at the time we were thinking budapest and estonia and then it expanded to these other 24 countries and so that's really what happened is we came together we started doing webinars um business webinars, uh, sales webinars, uh, you know, why you would want to start a company, how you balance a company plus, or how you balance a new job plus your day job. Cause a lot of people didn't have that freedom to just go starting something. How do you balance um, family and entrepreneurship? How do you um, get res- the respect you need on the negotiation table? And so what we became was a webinar was the place to start. And then now there are um, one-on-one peer teams, mentoring teams uh, and peer groups and advice. And and we just kept seeing that national borders did not separate the kinds of problems, right? So some of the cultural problems, uh, business access, financial capital access uh, problems or opportunities, uh, we're similar across borders. And so that's how we got started.
0: So what's, how, how's the organization structured right now? Um, and where are you sort of, where's the base of operation? What kind of team do you have?
1: So we have a relatively small team. We have a couple of people here in Charleston and we do still have two individuals in Budapest that we work closely together with. Um, and what we do is, We uh, connect women uh, in mentor relationships. We do online training and groups and we do um, membership. There is a paid membership program for people who want more access to more training and, or bring it into their organization. And
0: so, so what's the best way for women to get involved or that are listening out in the audience Or have friends, you know, someone might be listening, you know, whether it's their wife or their girlfriend or their sister or their mom. As I know, I did a lot of, you know, nurturing my mom to get her through nursing school when she was in her Uh late forties. So, you know, what's the best way? And and also, I, you know, I know in EEO, there's usually a problem, right? Yeah, either you you've run into an obstacle or you've run into an opportunity, and you're not exactly sure how to tackle that. You know, opportunity or, or obstacle. And so you end up finding a peer group um, because you find yourself in a vulnerable place, right? Uh, it's right. Like, ah, I, I don't know how to do this. And I need to go be able to open up to other people. So, you know, what's the best way to get involved and kind of what do you typically see as an initial kind of engagement with people?
1: So, the best way is really just to find us on our Facebook page, the Millennial Women Network on Facebook. Um, and then we kind of go from there, and we'll probably invite you to one of the webinars, and then see what your needs are. And um, that—that's the best way.
0: So the last question I have, and this is an interesting one for me, is how do you source mentors? Because it, within the Entrepreneurs Organization, they we do try to have mentor. We have a mentorship chair, actually. And one of the big challenges is finding enough mentors who are willing to mentor the one million to three million dollar company that's trying to get to five or ten, or the accelerator program that we have is sort of a quarter million dollar, you know, trying to get them up over the million dollar mark so they qualify for EO. But it is really challenging, uh, I think, historically, you know, across different membership chairs and whatnot, to source mentors. Because there's usually a lot more mentees than there are mentors. So how do you go about uh, doing that?
1: So that's a great question. And I think it's how we do everything, right? Two ways. One is um, make sure we're we're asking the right question. If we are saying, would you like to mentor? I think we're outstretching because we don't actually even know if we want that person to mentor. And we're asking beyond what they often can commit to. And they don't know what they're going to get into. Um, So we'll ask something like, uh, you sold a company, can you tell us the story of how you sold your company? And can we do uh, maybe a webinar on that? Can we do a story on that? Can we do a blog post on that? Can we feature you on that? Can we do an interview on this thing that is really knowledgeable? And so we give them the experience of how easy it is. You know, my mom always told me I wasn't smart enough to lie, so I just, I, I don't want you to tell any highfalutin story. Just tell me your truth. And, and so when I can do that with someone that I know is a great mentor, but they don't know that they're a great mentor. So lots of times people, um, say no because they think I'm asking them something more than what they can actually do. But if I can give you an experience that all you have to do is be yourself and that's actually really powerful, then they start to see it in their their own situation. And Usually what happens is on the other side, we're explaining to mentees what's realistic about a mentor. This is not um, and it, you know, um, a board member that you're not accountable to, but you get to take all of their time and if, You know, the, the, and, and we kind of spend some time explaining um, boundaries around what makes a good mentor, and and how maybe you do need an advisory board, which is a sort of a different situation. And here's how that would work. Um, and so, helping to hone that scope creep potential problem is is really critical. And, and then more often than not, we can create a situations where we don't have to be the recruiting team. The relationships will um, bubble up. Uh, it's a matter of creating enough of those situations.
0: I guess my last question is, do these mentors need to be all women or are you open to, just like the book, right? Do you, you want yeah. men and women to read Are you open to having men come in and mentor these women as well?
1: Thank you for that. We would love men. We have in in the recruiting energy that we were sort of just talking about, we've spent more time with um, women, but men would be great mentors. Men would be great business mentors around the world, and they would uh, get a lot out of it as well. So that would be great.
0: Well, B, thank you for coming on the Built on Strategy podcast. We really appreciate you uh, sharing what you're doing with the Millennial Women Network. And also, um, those of you that are out there, I know a lot of the folks that listen to the show are members of the Entrepreneurs Organization or they're entrepreneurs in their own right. Um, and if you are interested in getting involved either as a mentor or a mentee or want to build a, a network or get engaged with a, a, a global network of women that are trying to solve some of the same problems you're trying to solve i encourage you to reach out to the millennial women network on facebook reach out to b ray on linkedin and uh, if you can't get to B, you know how to get in touch with me and i will connect you with b to make sure that happens so again thank you for coming on the show
1: oh thank you so much absolute pleasure
0: until next time i'm brandon lacy reminding you that a successful life much like a successful business is built on strategy And if you need a better strategy to compete for customers or talent, contact me, Brandon Lisi, at builtonstrategy.com, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. And finally, please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast platform you prefer. Share it and recommend it to your friends. Take care.